Hi, my name is Ajane, and I just built a picture frame by myself for the first time. Hashtag DIY, hashtag Bop the Builder. <laughs> I was gonna say Ajane the Builder. <laughs> Love to see it. <laughs> and I am Brittany, and my to be read book list got hands, and right now those hands are in my ass. Down bad, bad. So, what you gotta do is you gotta let the book list, you gotta let that stack be your emotional support book stack. Like, you can't, you gotta stop calling it your to be read until it can actually be read. It's just emotional support, it's just there. <laughs> this stack is everywhere. <laughs> like, there's a whole lot of emotional support. Because we need a lot of emotional support. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's facts. <laughs> that's facts. And you are listening to Verses, the podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them. And today we are going to be interviewing the lovely Naomi Shihab Nye. We're super excited for it. Before we get into that though, Best, how are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. I'm talking to my best friend. <laughs> Honestly, love that for us. You look great. Uh, dang. Listener, you can't see her, but she looks great. She's in pink, which is my favorite color to paint the picture. <laughs> I'm not doing this with you. <laughs> This is my best reckless at the mouth season, in case y'all was wondering, listener. Speaking of seasons, mm-hmm. what season would you say you've had the most fun in, like, ever in life? Ooh, so, my most fun season would definitely be my study abroad season. I was 20. Mm, I remember that era. I lived in Spain and in Morocco, and mostly because I was kind of living in a vacuum. And it was the only time in my life where I had time for literally everything i had time to go to school and do my homework and eat dinner every night with my host family and then go out and party with my friends my black girlfriends till four o'clock in the morning and then somehow come back and still get all my sleep and make it to class the next day like the math wasn't mathing but it mathed it just did (laughs) it just did and I could say a million things, but that's the most fun I've ever had in my life. Love what that. about you, Bess? Love that. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky right I now. Know. So, um. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, I think it is all of the the fun of my twenties, but very, very much in my body, very much autonomous, very clear headed. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's all of it's 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 a fun time. I think this is the first season that I have prioritized myself. And it's nice. I like it. I like it for I like you, best. Thank you. I really love that for you. So today, listeners, we had the pleasure of interviewing Naomi Shihab Nye, where we talked a lot about seasons of fun and joy and wonder. Naomi Shihab Nye was the Young People's Poet Laureate of the United States. She has been a visiting poet all her life and done a million random jobs. She is on faculty at Texas State University and poetry editor for the Texas Observer. Her most recent books include The Turtle of Michigan, Dear Vaccine, The Tiny Journalist, Everything Comes Next, Castaway, and Voices in Deep. We are so excited, so let's get into this. Naomi, we would love if you would do us the honor of starting us out with a poem, please. Thank you. I would love to. This is called One, a delivery man pounded the door. The boy said, that shook my bones. Only months ago, before this happened, on the brink, at the edge, I kept saying, something 
really big and weird is about to happen. No one responded or would say, isn't this weird enough already? At his father's funeral in Libya, everyone told Khaled, I Zena Wahad, our grief is one. Under the differences, beyond the many years, we did not speak together. Wahad, when the sun sinks low, we will both be watching it, perplexed. I told the boy I had a bad dream. He said, have a new one. Hmm. I love that ending. Thank you. I love that boy. He always gives me <laughs> poems and things he says. You know, during these strange COVID years, I think we've been thinking a lot about duplicity, singularity, being alone, isolation, and then longing for others and appreciating others in a new way. And and so hearing that from my friend Khaled about, about that tradition in Libya, to say every person says, our grief is one in Arabic when you pass through like the line. And like in, in Northern Ireland, I heard everybody says, I'm sorry for your trouble when someone dies, like everyone in a line, I'm sorry for your trouble, sorry. So I was just moved by that phrase, our grief is one and how many people were feeling all kinds of grief in all varieties of ways and yeah, I think we have been bonded in that. One of the things that I love that happens pretty frequently in your poems is this profound moment at the end where like there's also a bit of humor. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm kind of laughing, but also on the verge of crying Um, and oh. also having some <laughs> deep revelations about my life. And so just that moment of like have another one of like, yeah, but like I wanted to laugh and then like the laugh got caught because I was like, wait. Yeah, to feel the humor and the sorrow kind of mixed together. Yeah. Yeah, I, I often feel that as well when I read a poem. And I feel as if that would make the poem happy in a way, like mm. to stir us up that realm of feeling and whatever feeling it is. You know, they all blend. And, you know, so many poets have said things like to have joy, you have to have grief and everything is all mixed. And poetry takes us there quickly. It does. It takes us there quickly, but it stirs us in a really beautiful way. It doesn't leave me in one place. And I'm really grateful for that. Oh, thank you so much. You had started to touch on being moved already. So I think that's a perfect transition into our opening question, which is what is moving you these days? Oh, what's moving me these days? Well, I'm always moved by things I read. I, you know, I read every day and I read different kinds of things. I'm finishing up a novel right now called The Leopard is Loose mm. by my friend Steve Harrigan of Austin. And it's a book about childhood. And it really carries me away to, you know, not only Steve's childhood and living in Oklahoma, a place I've never lived, but feeling just the, the beauty, the magic, the mystery, the trauma of childhood. And it, it's based on a real thing that happened when he was a little boy that a leopard escaped from the zoo and was loose in the city for a long time. It's kind of like like COVID, like something you know it's out there, but you don't know where it is exactly. 
And so this leopard, like how it affected all these people's lives. It's good. It's a good book. And I think I've read it so slowly because it's so delicious. I was reading Time is a Mother by Ocean Vong right now. And I just read, I got to pick this gorgeous book called Ella's Plan by Jeffrey Bean. And it won this chapbook contest. And it's a fantastic book about a little girl who's sort of a daydreamer, a misfit, an outsider as a child in her classroom. And this book won, I was so thrilled I got to pick it. It won the prize for out of Maine for the Poets Corner and Maine Media. And I was the judge. And when you find a book that you love, as much as I loved Jeffrey Bean's book, you just keep reading. And then they quickly made it a book. It was such a fast production. I was very impressed. But it also makes me think about all of our childhoods and how it's all that part of our lives is always with us wherever we are in time. And the mystery of childhood, you know, it kind of grows, takes on different shapes. That's all touching me. And being with a child in a very hot summer is touching me. My grandson is six now, and he's probably a little more sensitive to the heat than I am. And so I try to you know, sit in the shade and just notice uh, what he notices and follow his direction. We go to museums together, partly because they're cool, but also I think it's really great to be a child in a museum. My mother took me to the museum through my whole childhood because it was free and we didn't have any money. And I was able to spend a lot of time at the St. Louis Museum of Art in my first 10 years of life. And so just being with him in a museum is, is amazing. And the other day I was, when I was picking him up at his house, I said, hey, there was a big lizard sitting here before you answered the door to come out. And he goes, oh yeah, I know him. His name's Larry. You know him? His name is Larry? <laughs> to him that wasn't, he wasn't trying to be cute or funny or anything. It was like, have, how many lizards have you named? And he said, oh, a lot of them. He's the big one. Furthermore, when you say you know him, like, like what do you know about him? <laughs> he knows which cactus he likes to sleep. Oh. He knows which direction he went. He said, oh, he went that way, right? And I said, yeah. How'd you know that? He goes, he always likes to go that way. <laughs> so wow. just the relationship that children have with the world is eternally rejuvenating to me mm. and so you know I always think if you're in a bad mood or a foul mood just go babysit someone go be with a kid somewhere yeah and you'll change your mood yeah because kids are the essential original first poets and William Stafford one of my favorite poets used to say when we're little children we're all poets mm. and some of us just try to keep up the habit mm. and I love that I was going to say six is a perfect age because six-year-olds have all of the curiosity, but not as much of like the the angst <laughs> as a person with like a teen and a seven-year-old. I'm like, the six-year-old is like, that's right. I have all the questions and the world is full of wonder. Yeah. And that's the best time. It's a beautiful time. You're so right. And, and it's a time that, you know, Ocean Vaughn said something in his book that I was just reading, something about... You know, we're not there very long in childhood. You know, it's a, it's a kind of a haunting slice of life, too, because we don't get to stay there that long. We're, we're kind of shuffled forward really quickly, it seems. And that that hits me because I've always tried to stay, you know, keep that part of myself alive. And I think poetry and working with kids with poetry has helped 
has helped me do that. But we, we need that part of ourselves, you know, because the other parts of ourselves are often not quite as nourishing. Yeah, they're, they're more fretful, more fretful. For sure. I definitely was a lot less anxious as a child, right? Because the world seemed possible. And the older I get, the more I'm like, oh, but what if? And not in the way that kids, what if? In a way that I'm like, oh, this is not helpful. Right. Like, I thought wars were over when I was a child. I thought there were going to be no more wars in any countries because people already had wars and they were horrible. And now they knew that. And so we could rest in peace about no more wars. What a joke. You know, if anyone had told me that when I was elder grown up that guns would be such a a traumatic centerpiece, horrible centerpiece of American life because the trauma, the the fear keeps coming back and back and back, recycling every day for, for kids. They're very aware of it. Yes, certainly. That's really resonant with me, too. As a school teacher, guns are absolutely, when I was in school, that wasn't something we were worried about. But now that I'm in the classroom, that's something my kids are absolutely talking about all the time. Yeah, that's so sad. And then you think, wait a minute, I put at the front of one of my books many years ago, you know, every single religion in the world says thou shalt not kill. So what's going on with all this gun stuff? Why? You know, not that everybody is religious, but it just seems like all these things don't they don't mix they don't they don't make sense and i feel for some kids today because they have access to so much more information that than i felt i had as a child and my father was a journalist so we had a lot of news talk in our house we knew about the news there were newspapers everywhere all the time but but i didn't feel you know everything wasn't as blippy immediate mm. as it is now and kids now getting so much news all the time. I don't know, that must be a burden too, real burden. Where do you put all that, all that information? I think really frequently about all of the language <laughs> that kids have access yes. to, all, all of the language, all of the images, like it's a lot. I'm no longer in the classroom full time, but like it's all weighing on them. That's so hard. It's hard and it's become a part of their reality. I think one of the things, especially hearing you talk about all of these things with youth and with children and your grandson, that I was really invested in was you writing for young people and writing for children, especially as someone who I, I'm always trying to figure out how to make the poetry of adults accessible or like fresh or exciting for students sometimes I'll even just teach youth poets to do it and I know a lot of people who write YA and I know you write that as well but not a lot of people who are writing poems for younger people and I just wanted to know if you could talk about how you approach work for young writers especially in this time I, I love writing for them and, and thinking about them as audience and you know writing poems for them doesn't seem like a huge stretch to me. Mm. I mean, I know that I'm not a highly analytical person. I've never been like super sophisticated in my approach to culture or I don't know, daily life. I just, I sort of have a grassroots, very simple interaction with the world that I think I already had as a child. And I was already already writing as a child. So just a sense of wanting language to be clear, trying to keep the memory of what it is to look at the world with those fresher eyes always 
near me or in me. Right now I'm working on a book of poems, mom poems, but also moms in general. So of course that's why I instantly ordered Time as a Mother when I heard that Ocean had written about his mother and her dying. And um, But I've read a lot of po family poems over the years with kids. And you know, writing about other people is sometimes not as easy as writing about a frog or a season or Larry the lizard, or you know, it's easier to write about not people. So it's intriguing to me just thinking about different eras with a mom. And right now I'm I'm trying to go back to her childhood mm. and write some poems that I'm imagining, you know, before she was my mom, before I ever knew her. And luckily I do have a diary she kept for five years and she wrote every single day. So it's a thick little diary. And so I'm trying to conjure her up as a girl in those years and uh, the things I knew about her, all the pictures, all the things I've found that she saved, some really mysterious things that I found after her death that I just desperately wish I could ask her about. So that's been very interesting. I found a piece of paper on which she wrote, I was engaged to someone else before I got married and I will never tell anyone to whom. What, mom? <laughs> <laughs> you know, find weird stuff like that. I also found out that she, well, I knew she had been a cartographer, a map maker when she was really young, like, and that she made flight maps, but that she had never flown. And I remember when I was a child, I used to think, I don't know if I would trust maps made by someone who has never been in an airplane. If they're for pilots, how could she even have that job? But what she never told us was to have that job, she had to join the army. She never told us she had joined the army. And we found this paper that said she had an indefinite appointment to the United States Army. And I thought, wow, mom, you never took any of the like you never went to an army base and shopped at the PX or anything. We never even knew this. What is this? Why was this secret? Doesn't that seem like something you would know about your parent? And there's no one left to ask, not one person. Ooh, I am both fascinated and haunted by the idea of these multiple versions of your mom. Like it's almost yeah. like several different lives almost. Wow. Right, right. Yeah. Like even doing a poem things I never knew about you or things you never told me. And that whole concept that, you know, like everybody has a whole life before they're your parent or before you knew them. Yeah. And doesn't poetry help us like look at these mysteries of our own lives? And like, here's a mystery. Um, my father was an immigrant. He came to the United States when he was 22 from Palestine. He was an Arab. And I had you know, relationships with his brothers later in my life. They did not immigrate until later. So I didn't meet them till I was much older. Or when I lived in Palestine myself, I met them over there. But they didn't come to the United States till they were much older. And one of my uncles tells me one day, I want to tell you some stuff about your dad from his earliest years that you have no idea about. And I said, okay, that sounds good. When, when can we have this conversation? Like now? And he goes, no, we'll, we'll do it very soon though. And he left my house and then he died. Yeah. What was he going to tell me? I, I have no idea. What was he going to tell oh me? God. And so, you know, I can write that in a poem 
And then I can write about him and how he was kind of a beacon of mystery too in his own relationship with, with the United States, with Palestine, with his own kids, with me, with everybody. But, you know, poetry is a place we go with our mysteries. I'm thinking about all the stuff. So one, it's it's fascinating hearing about you talk about this project that you're working on um, or this next book you're working on about your mother, about uncovering these mysteries. I think also about the concept of writing into the gaps of being like, there's all of these visible gaps. A lot of what I'm working on in my own space right now is actually about my mom and the idea of conceptualizing her is like, you were a whole person before you met me. And that's crazy because my entire, I only know a version of you as a mother. And so hearing you process through that and talk about the mystery of writing in is really, really, uh, it's really, really helpful. And I think there's a, I don't, I don't know, maybe there is something in the air because a lot of, I think a lot of people are processing mother relationships right now. Well, I wish you well in your project. I would love to read it someday. Oh. Send me some. I will. Please. I 10 out of 10 will. <laughs> yeah. And that, that idea of person being a whole person before we figure into their story, that's really important. And, and just thinking of, you know, all of our friendships and contacts and people who feel like friends just through because we know their poems. I loved for many, many years, I loved the work of a Scottish poet named Alistair Reed. And he also wrote essays for the New Yorker. He was a critic. And then I actually got to meet him twice in my life. It was so thrilling to, to meet him. Once was in England and once in New York City. And he has a poem he wrote to his father. I think the poem is called My Father Dying, where he's sitting at his father's bedside. And the poem ends with, now begins, after his father has just died, now begins the conversation going on and on and on. And that's certainly something I've been feeling with my mom. Like I talk to her out loud every day, you know, try to hear her voice and in the air, what she would respond or how she would guide me. And sometimes I just say, you know, would you help so-and-so or some person who needs it or you know, I need your comfort, please. And I do feel that that conversation is continuing and certainly writing about her. It's as if I keep being surprised by the things that pop up. So, you know, may that always be the case with, with our projects, with our poems, that they keep giving us things back that we are not kind of in charge of. We're just opening the door to let these images, these these reverberations, whatever you want to call them, these instinctual knowings come come poking through back to us. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for being such beautiful people that I would want to talk to you about all kinds of all kinds of mysterious things right now. And thank you for opening up to us about this. I'm like, this is just just breaking me like wide open. What you were saying is making me think of how poets are vessels, I think, in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Especially if we're talking about memory, yeah. we're talking about people who have passed and honoring them, their thoughts, their, you know what I'm saying? Imaginations, I think of us as like vessels. Yeah. I know you mentioned in your, in our previous correspondence that another new project you're working on is a book of prose that deals with a friend that has also recently passed. If you could talk about the process of honoring somebody's memory through editing unpublished work or through looking at things that the rest of the world didn't know, right? So for example, the notes from your mother that no one else has seen, how do you 
handle that process? The book that I've been working on with my friend Marion Winnick, who is a marvelous, very, very funny writer and very deep, very bold, very terrific writer in person. She lives in Baltimore, but she did used to live in Texas and we became friends in her 20 years in Texas. And I, I consider her one of my best, best friends. She and I are working together to to edit this book of prose of the writings of N. Alejandro, who lived in Uvalde, Texas, a place which now, unfortunately, has been heard of by everyone. But Uvalde is a very dear town, 80 miles to the west of San Antonio, where I live. And I knew Anne over many years, and she was a teacher, a writer. She published one chapbook of poetry called The Beauty Parlor Poems, and she wrote it in different voices of women in a beauty parlor and a, a beauty salon. And Anne was a very, very gifted writer. And unfortunately, she was racked with pain from the age of 32 till the age of 64 when she died. Jesus. She had a chronic fibromyalgia and other pain issues. I don't think any of us ever understood them all. I don't think she did. It was so overwhelming. She went to so many doctors, tried so many treatments, and it was very hard. So because of that, she didn't really have the energy or the spirit, I guess I would say, to, to follow through on publishing her own work, although she wrote the most eloquent letters any of us ever received. So everybody would always say to her, you know, why are you writing these 10 page letters to everyone? You should be writing books with the same material. So Marion and I promised her before she died that we would sort through millions of pages of letters that we had and make a book. This is a very big project. And, you know, because you read like many, many pages and then you find this incredible nugget that you feel that has to be in the book. So we've been editing it over about three years now since she died. And now that Uvalde is a place name that people have all heard of, I feel it almost a different urgency because I want the book to come out to represent the town in yet another way that doesn't involve violence, but involves someone who had a profound relationship with the land, with animals, with people, with her family, with with her faith, with the sky, with weather, with just all the things that Anne cared a lot about. And she also was very funny. I mean, I think this book is a real mixture of serious and funny. So Marion and I are working on that. We're going back out to Uvalde on Monday and we're gonna go to the ranch that meant a lot to Anne's life. And even though I was friends with her for many years, I've never been to this ranch. I would always see her at her house in town or I would see her in this town. So so it's a big project and we're both putting our efforts on it. And I think the whole idea of valuing someone else's voice and wanting them to be able to speak to more people, because I honestly feel she's one of the most interesting Texas voices I've ever read from any era of Texas literature. And I just want more people to know her through her work. So we're doing this out of devotion to our friend and to the spirit of 
being a vessel. Yeah, we're we're the editor vessels now that we can help. And also now we're we feel like we're vessels for Uvalde to help people see all the joy and life and love that exists there and not just, you know, one person's terrible crime against beautiful children and teachers and humanity. So sad. For devotion to guide the way you curate the work of someone else and the time and effort you place into that as an editor, that's that's beautiful. Well, thank you. And it is a different muscle in the mind, I think, when you're editing and selecting. I made eight poetry anthologies for young readers. And when I would be making them, I would feel as if I were exercising my brain in a different way, because I'd be picking out, I'd be reading through lots and lots and lots of poems to find poems that I felt would be appealing and appropriate and uh, endearing for younger, younger eyes to fall upon, and poems that would make them love poetry, or make them feel as if poetry belonged to them. So I was always curious about that. And even when I did a themed anthology like poems from Mexico or poems from the Middle East, I would be selecting them with, you know, young people in mind to be reading the book. And so I, I learned to love the process of selection as well as creation, you know, and as somebody who had been in so many classrooms, always trying to pick out poems that might appeal to the students who were sitting before me and try to engage them in their own poetry spirit so they would write, want to write poems. It was fun. It was good. It was a lot of work, a lot of fun. After I did my eighth anthology, I said, okay, that's it. I'm not doing any more. <laughs> I love how you describe that as like the difference between selection versus creation. I think that's a really cool way to think about those two different muscles or those two different skill sets. I'm wondering what you wish a younger version of yourself in the poetry world, either as like an editor or a writer, what you wish you would have known that you now know as somebody with like so many years of experience? Well, that's a, such a sweet question. You know, I think I would like to have known how wonderful it could be to be really um, absorbed in a world you know, I was, I was always feeling that poetry was the center of my life from early childhood. Whatever jobs I had, I thought poetry can be there. It's portable. It goes with you. Um, you could have a lot of different jobs, but always have poetry at the center of your being. And so the idea that I've been lucky enough to get to work in poetry all these years, it just has worked out. You know, it was, it was such a gift to get to work with so many students of all ages over the years in so many different places. And, you know, I never worried too much. I was not a big worrier as a kid. Like I never worried about rejection or what if you send your poems out and they don't get published. I would just think, send them somewhere else. Just sort of like <laughs> the end of that poem. What? If, you're, if you have a bad dream, have a better one. Have a <laughs> um, so I wasn't kind of a worrier about my work. Like I know a lot of people are about their work. But um, I was also lucky to work with a great editor for the last 30 years. And I, her name is Virginia Duncan. And I know what a huge, huge gift that is. And that's something that many writers don't get to have such a wonderful ongoing relationship 
with one person editor. And I also work with Peter Connors at BOA and I've worked with Tom Booth at Far Corner. And so really terrific uh, editors who have been just with me a long time and dear friends as well as, you know, helpmates. And I wish I had known how good it could be, but I think I always sort of guessed that. Mm. I think I had humble dreams. You know, I thought I didn't want to, you know, I, I do not relate to the word career. I, I'm not a careerist. I never wanted to go to graduate school. So I didn't. I never wanted to have a full-time fancy job. So I didn't. I had a lot of piecemeal jobs, you know, part-time freelance poetry in the schools, poetry and residence jobs. I did end up working for places like the Michener Center for Writers in Austin and Texas State University in San Marcos over periods of years, which I'm very grateful for. But I'm, I'm not like full-time on the faculty. I don't have a parking place. I don't have an office. I've always been like kind of a sidekick to everything that I work for. But I like that. That suited me so well. So I guess, you know, so now I'm in an age where I don't have any official retirement either. But that's okay. Because I lived the life I, I dreamed of. And wow. um, I guess it would have been nice to know you can do that. But I never worried about it. I figured you could do that. If not. You could go back to working in restaurants, which I did when I was in college. You know, I was never a server, weirdly. I was always a salad maker. <laughs> and I loved babysitting when I was a teenager. You know, be, I was already wanting to be with kids, just random kids. Anyone I heard of in the neighborhood who needed a babysitter in any country, I would always go and say, well, I can babysit. And then I would meet all these great kids. Some of them I'm still in touch with. So that's that's fun. I am so in awe of your life. <laughs> I am. So inspired right now. That's sweet of you. You're so sweet. The I live the life I dreamed of is, it, it low-key was a drag. It, it, it was like, <laughs> it was like all those goals you're setting, have them, but also why the goal is, what is, what is the life that you're actually dreaming of in that? Wow. Like the, that might be a tattoo, but I might have to tap this line on me because as a reminder... Yeah, just to, to be with kids uh, of all ages and to work with poetry in some way. And that is possible. I mean, I've, I've been able to do it. Mm. And um, yeah, with no great training in the field other than being a lifelong poet and having now a ton of experience. So it is nice to be able to say that in all these years, I never went anywhere where poetry didn't exist. Mm. That's really special to me. I never went anywhere where things didn't work out, you know, in, with some kind of poetry transaction. Or the time I worked at a remote village in Alaska, and I was supposed to go to this community center and wait for people to show up. And a girl came, and then a boy came, and it turned out to be her brother. And she looked at him with shock, and she said, why are you here? And he said, <laughs> I want to write. And she said, well, I want to write. And I said, don't you guys talk in your house? You don't know this about each other? And they said, no, well, we do talk, but we never said that to each other. And who shows up? The third person who showed up that night? Their mother. Oh wow. my gosh. And I'm like, whoa, and do you want to write? And she goes, yes, I need to write. And I have these three members 
of one family who have never confessed to one another that they all want to write. It was mind blowing. I said, I can't believe this. And we had an incredible evening because they all wanted to write in completely different ways about very different things. And yet they did not know this about one another. And so, you know, you learn doing these jobs in far flung places, you know, this hunger to write, to communicate, to express. And um, I felt as if when they left that night, like their family was gonna be different. They were gonna know something about each other that was very deep and important to each of them because here they had all come out of their houses to meet a stranger, me, and tell me what they needed to write about. It was fantastic. Um, so that kind of confirmed something important for me that you know we don't always tell our deepest dreams to the person right next to us. That sometimes we need a stranger to walk in and say, I hear you, what do you want to speak about? So if you both have been teachers, you've probably seen that happen with your students, that they speak about things with you that maybe they've never been able to speak about with other people. It's, it's such an incredible relationship, so intimate to, to work with people one-on-one -on -one that way. It very much is. And I think I've been teaching for a little bit over a decade. And so I've had the opportunity to have students tell me dreams and then come back and have like begun the path of fulfilling them. And so that's even more beautiful. And so just to hear you talk about a lifetime of that is doing something so good for my heart, um, especially because working with youth is so tough right now. So this is really like a bomb for me right now. Yeah. I, you know, I think writing gives us hope too. I really do believe writing extends and expands our hope possibility because you know if we just if we only listen to the news and only paid attention to all the sorrow that's going on in so many places you know i think it would be very hard to survive and and keep our hopes up but i think when we write we keep reopening to a place inside ourselves that's essentially made of hope like our original hope. What was it? What did we dream of doing in the world? What could we still do? I love that. So I'm wondering, this is a question that we ask everyone, if there were three people from any genre, anyone, any, any genre, dead or alive, who we would have to study to or should study to like understand your work who would those people be gosh i don't know i don't think my work is very hard to understand but i thought this was going to be the dinner party question like, <laughs> <laughs> you said who would you invite and talk to i really want to invite rihanna and get it <laughs> do either of you listen to her no tell us tell us give us the information i urge you to listen to her and, and this has nothing to do with understanding my work. <laughs> she has given me so much in my spirit of joy of the la in the last two years. Somebody told me about her right when COVID was starting. So I started listening to her right when COVID was coming into the atmosphere. Oh my gosh, she blows my mind. She's so great. Rhiannon Giddens, songwriter, singer, originally from Greensboro, North Carolina. And I think she lives part of the time in Ireland. Anyway, look her up, Giddens, G-I-D-D-E-N-S, Rhiannon, first name. But for my work, let's see. I really loved Carl Sandburg as a child. 
And I do sometimes feel that I've sort of been on a similar path. I mean, he, he would take a guitar and sing when he did a poetry reading. I did that for all my young years. And I wrote a lot of songs too. Uh, not as good as Rhiannon Gibbons though. And, and so when I go back and read Carl Sandburg now, I hear these echoes in his poems of things I loved as a child, things that drew me like a magnet to poetry. And that, that makes me feel happy to still understand what it was, his attention to detail. He has a famous poem about a girl who's doing a cash register. I think it's in a restaurant, might be in a grocery store, but he just, he recognizes her beauty. And I remember being so moved by that poem when I was seven years old, because I also would stare at people in public places like a, a wait person in a restaurant or a cash register per person, cashier, and, and just think, I wish I knew you. Who are you? You're really fast. Or I would have all these thoughts of wanting to be friends with people as a child. And I felt that impulse in Carl Sandburg. So for like what draws me to poetry, maybe go to Carl Sandburg. For my attachment to Palestine on behalf of my father and my grandmother and all of that whole side of my family, I would say go to Mahmoud Darwish, the great Palestinian poet, because nobody wrote about longing for a place, which is something that all Palestinians share often when they're even in that place because it's not quite the place they remember and they're still living in apartheid occupation and uh, literally at gunpoint every day um, living in their own place. So uh, Mahmoud Darwish would be important for understanding kind of some of my poems that strive toward more justice for all of the people who have been wronged. And there are so many of them there. That would be important. And then maybe to have a sense of the childhood sensibility. I love as millions, probably billions of people do, E.B. White. And I, I got to sit at his desk a few years ago in Maine. And it's in a little boathouse right on the, on the water. And um, one of my friends knew the people who owns the house he used to live in when he was writing these famous books like Charlotte's Web and, you know, books that a lot of kids read. And to sit at that desk, it has a lobster painted on it because it's on the seacoast of Maine. This little, it's really not even a desk. It's like a flat little table and a bench um, in this tiny boathouse looking out at the water. That really gave me a thrill. And just to think about his essays and his spirit you know, I don't know if that would shed light on my work, but it would shed light on the voice of an adult who dreams of continuing to write for children. And I think he did it so well. I mean, he wrote so many essays for adults, yes, but he also wrote brilliantly for children and his books are indelible. Like they'll go on forever, I think, and be beloved forever. So that's, but that's like, I'm picking really great people, like legendary people. I should pick more humble people to shine a light on my work. Really, like the kid down the block who grew up to be an urban planner or, you know, those people. I think those kids probably have some insight <coughs> into how much poetry meant to me, wanting to convey it all the time. I and that's a little that. scary because I just spoke about myself in the past tense as if I've already gone on. 
how much poetry meant to me. I should say how much it means to me every day of my life. Well, it's kind of like yeah. you were speaking about a past version of yourself, the version of yourself that they knew. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That is. Oh, thank you. I think it, I think it was particularly cool to, re- <laughs> <laughs> to refer to yourself that way. <laughs> not in like a, not as like a post postmortem, but as like a wow, all of these versions of myself. Yeah. They know that specific version of myself. That just reminded me of what you were initially saying about your mother, yeah. about the different lives that she's lived. So the idea that different different people would would know a version of you that is each like slightly different is really cool. Also, I just want to talk about other writers, but not my work. Like the poet June Jordan gave me so much conviction as a young person that we really need to be activists for the things that we care about. And people like Gwendolyn Brooks, whom I got to hear in person, or Lucille Clifton, one of my lifelong favorite poets and dear friends. I adored Lucille. Toy Derricotte, who's living now, thank goodness, is one of my favorite poets. And just, you know, so many women have been a huge part of my life. And I think, I think we all inform one another. Sharon Olds, you know, just we, Mary Oliver, all these women, Jane Hirschfield, um, the Palestinian poet Bedwa Tukan, who was a very brave woman voice. I met her one time, she was already in her 80s. And I was so impressed that she was wearing bright red lipstick and high heels. And she was like 85. And I thought, gosh, I'm young and I don't dress up that well myself. I'm impressed with her. She looks so beautiful. But Fedwa lived in her parents' house all her life and was very valiant writing about occupation and the apartheid that Palestinians live with. So I admire her. But, you know, none of those, all those great people, they don't shine a light on me, but they shone a light on me in terms of belief that you can write about these things that matter to you. You're a great writer. And to know all of these writers who you're in conversation with, I think is so, such a gift. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Okay, so the game we are going to be playing is this versus that. So how this works is we are going to give you two things, and you are going to tell us in a fight who wins and why. So we're going to give you the innocence of the six-year-old, maybe even the curiosity of the six-year-old. I love curiosity, yes. So let's go. The curiosity of the six-year-old versus the mystery of the archive. Oh, the curiosity of the six-year-old, because it's boundless and so open and carries you forward. I love how that was such an immediate answer. You're like, yeah, the six-year-old there was no it. hesitancy. I also love this idea of being carried forward by it. Whereas like mystery, yeah. like there's, I think there is only so far you can go in mystery. I don't know. I feel like mystery has like right. boundless depths though, because it's hard to get the answers to them. What if I never know the answers? Right. You're kind of, and with mystery though, you're like hovering around. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, that's a hard one because I like them both. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I hope the others are easier. <laughs> that was your only one. It's just one. It's just the one. It's just the one. So it's curiosity. The it's final just that answer. one? Yes. Yeah, just, just the, the one. one. That's it. There's only one. There's only one. <laughs> yes. So it's curiosity. Okay. The final answer or. Curiosity, the curiosity is my final answer. And I think also the recognition that a lot of the curiosity will end up with the mystery. So, yeah. I'll take it. 
I know if nothing else, six-year-olds have more energy than I will ever have. So just in that, they beat me in a fight alone. A lot of energy and a lot of, let's go. Let's All move the time. It. <laughs> yes. And the mystery of the archive, though, you know, every day is like an archive. And our, you know, what our moods will be, what we'll think of when we write, what will surface for us, what one phrase might lead us to another phrase, you know, a friend's voice, what we'll end up talking about. Um, yeah, there's so much mystery every day. Yeah, that is incredibly beautiful. So we want to ask you if you would do the honor of reading us one more poem. Yes, I picked thank you so much for your time and your beautiful hearts. Thank you. And your spirits, which would make anyone want to talk. And I can tell how lucky your students, your friends, your families are. Oh, Please my God. Consider me among your friends. Why would you do this to us? Okay, you're my friend. Oh, I'm going to go cry. Keep me in your friend's um, pocket. I will. This <laughs> You will hear from us. That is one thing about us. You will hear from us. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to read an older poem called Shoulders because um, I just think about it a lot lately, how we need to help each other and in all kinds of ways that we may never even have thought of yet. So this was a, um, a an observational poem and it was probably twice as long to begin with and got cut back to this. Shoulders. A man crosses the street in rain, stepping gently, looking two times north and south because his son is asleep on his shoulder. No car must splash him. No car drive too near to his shadow. This man carries the world's most sensitive cargo, but he's not marked. Nowhere does his jacket say, Fragile, handle with care. His ear fills up with breathing. He hears the hum of a boy's dream deep inside him. We're not going to be able to live in this world if we're not willing to do what he's doing with one another. The road will only be wide. The rain will never stop falling. Well, I read that poem in a Texas in which we wish the rain would start falling and fall and fall and fall. And uh, we all know whatever state we're in, either tangibly or metaphorically, that we have to carry one another and otherwise we won't get there. So we need to, wherever it is, we need to keep carrying one another. And you two carried me through this evening very graciously. And I thank you for that. We thank you. Thank you so much for speaking with us. This was so generous. Yeah, I, I'm I'm wildly grateful. Wildly. Bess, why am I so emotional about this conversation? Because it was like sitting at an elder's feet. Yeah. Getting all the best advice, the knowledge, the wisdom. I don't know, Bess. It was beautiful. It was I'm tender. I'm wide open right now. You already know the vibe. <laughs> I'm feeling. I was gonna say, Bess, you always tender. I'm always, but I'm extra tender right now. I'm tender with extra sauce on it at this moment, and <laughs> I think one of the things that I can't let go of, one of the things that really wrecked me, is hearing Naomi says she doesn't know what she would tell 
her younger self because she's living the life she always dreamed of. And I'm like, listen, I I should be so lucky to Amen. be an elder on the scene to be um I should be so lucky to be an an elder in the scene or an elder anywhere and to think to myself that I feel fulfilled by the life that I've lived. Yeah. That's going on the vision board this year, best. Let's do it. Say less. We we got <laughs> we got our date set for the vision board. So what's one thing that would have to happen in your life for you to feel like you've lived the life of your dreams? I think that if I get to the end of my life and I feel like I have both loved my community well and then also been able to not just pour out for people but to receive love in like a really healthy way and one that has and one that like permitted growth i.e it wasn't just one that made space for growth so i.e because my community and I were loving each other well we were able to maybe shift the directions of each other's lives and kind of have some overflow and able to support others like able almost like a mutual aid of love type situation going on where like we just consistently had enough overflow to pour back into other spaces but to know like at the end of my life that I've got nothing but I've got nothing but community around me yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna close there first off cosign I don't know that I think I could ever live the life that felt fulfilled in isolation or without my folks or the folks I'm in service to. Yeah. The answer that's most like true to me right now is the life of my dreams involves a lot of freedom. It involves a lot of autonomy, especially employment wise. So maybe that's the, the next thing to push towards is that I feel like if I can look back as an elder and have periods of time where I wasn't beholden to anyone but myself and my folks, I think that's that's the dream for me. Amen. And I resonate with that. Who best? We got to make it happen. Because that's really the only option. Right. Like, on the vision board. <laughs> that's, the vision, like, that's really the only option. It's on the vision board. Because ever since that came out of her mouth, like I was like, oh, okay, that's the only goal. Live the life of my dreams. But, <laughs> and she made it sound so simple, right? Like, oh, of course. Like, we're just about to live the life of our dreams. And of course, we're like, all right. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. In fact, why am I not living the life of my dreams right now? Ridiculous. Miserable for no reason. Choosing misery. All right, Bess, let's say some thank yous and get out of here. Bess, who do you want to thank today? Ooh, Loki, I'm going to thank Gen Z because I feel like being at work with teenagers every day really reminds me that another world is possible. And there are people out here saying exactly what they're thinking every time they think it. (laughs) And sometimes I clutch my pearls. You know what I'm saying? A little wisdom might help out a little bit. But other times I'm like, wow, that's, I see you speaking your truth and I mess with it. So shout out to them. I know that's right. And um, in the spirit of Ramika Bingham Risher, I would like to thank Beyonce in case she ever listens to this for her to just know that everything I do in life, she is the undergirding engine. (laughs) She is the thing powering me forward. And ma'am, if you ever want to send us tickets, we will be front row. If you want to send me a hello if you just want to wave in my direction one day i'll take it 
Plus, we got to dream the most. You know what I'm saying? All the possibilities. <laughs> and in addition to Gen Z and Beyonce, we would also love to thank Nathan and the amazing staff at Baron Studios, the Poetry Foundation, Itza Blancas, Irami Noriega, Elon Sloan, Sen Pim, and Ombi Productions. Please like, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Bye.